Growing a small business has never been easy. So, how can we build our companies and shortcut the learning curve? By getting advice from the people who've done it before. Everything you need to grow your business is right here. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to the conference room. Good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. I am joined today by Arthur Woods. Arthur is a social entrepreneur and LGBTQ plus leader working at the intersection of equality, inclusion and technology. He was named to Forbes 30 under 30 and 40 under 40 by the magazine BEQ. He is the author of the national best-selling book, Hiring for Diversity. He is a global keynote speaker having delivered three TEDx talks and has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Fast Company and and Forbes, and I'm delighted that he's found time in his busy schedule. And believe me, it's a busy schedule to come <laughs> into here and talk to us here in the conference room. So, Arthur Woods, good afternoon, and welcome to the conference room. Thank you for having me, Simon. Thank you for the enthusiasm. I feel like it's my third cup of coffee. It's perfect. <laughs> Great stuff. So, every hero has an origin story, and you're the hero of our story. So, tell me, how did you get from graduating college through to being the global leader of the movement that you are? Yeah, great question. So, well, first of well, Simon, I grew up in a rural town, single parent family, and largely evangelical community. And, you know, I came out halfway through college after really having been taught for a lot of my life that it was a sin to be gay. And this kind of turned my world upside down in many ways. I found myself kind of going, beating to my own drum, so to speak, resorting to entrepreneurship, because I found that as an entrepreneur, you really can kind of create your own rules. And when I entered my very first corporate job, after having started a, a couple different ventures, I wanted to get a real job and was interviewing for this job. And I overheard the interviewer that I was speaking to use a homophobic slur. And it was in this whole process of kind of going from being my own kind of free agent as an entrepreneur to entering the corporate world and seeing this kind of microaggression that I really, first of all, for a couple of years following did not come out at work and felt really kind of afraid and unsafe to come out. But I really started to realize in that whole moment that work is playing an increasingly important role in people's lives. And yet for so many people, work is not a place where they thrive, where they feel empowered, where they can be themselves. And this really caused me on a whole string of events to start really investing my career in technology that creates a sense of humanity in the workplace. And that's been kind of realized in different capacities over the last 15 years for me. But I've had a chance to work on technology that's centered around purpose and peer-to-peer -peer coaching all the way to what we're doing now. It's all about really advancing DEI in the workforce. DEI? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. Okay. When you're going through your customer base now, what are the key problems that you're solving for them? Yeah. Today, the customer base that we work with has a lack of diversity on their teams, looks around the room and says, we don't have enough representation. And the customer base we work with typically has very limited data around their existing state of diversity. They have a diversity challenge, but they don't know where to start. And most of the space that we occupy is essentially manual consulting, which many early stage companies can't afford and don't have the capacity for, frankly. We have technology that is helping companies expand the diversity of their pipeline, take 
really specific measures to reduce bias in their hiring process and train their team in ongoing behavior change that's needed to more equitably hire. So it's a really kind of full end-to-end system. And it's rooted, Simon, in measurement. And we believe that you can only manage what you can measure. If we believe diversity is just as important as other critical business functions in our organizations, we need to be able to measure at every step of the way. We have a whole measurement system that helps organizations uncover their greatest gaps and actually set diversity goals. So putting, if you like, thought about some social justice just to one side for a moment, what are the business advantages, justifications, drivers for having a more diverse workforce? If you get there, obviously needs to be a removal of any prejudice. And I get right. that bias that you want a workforce where anyone and everyone can thrive, can develop, can be the best version of themselves and feel free to do so. However, what would you say to someone who felt, well, with all that in place, what should I care if 99% of my workforce are middle-aged white male, white straight males? Yeah, there are a number of pieces there to unpack. And I'm glad you asked that, Simon. The first piece is when we look around the room at a homogenous team, right? That homogenous team that had probably a lot of the same or similar lived experiences doesn't bring any kind of diversity of thought. So when we're trying to create something new and we're trying to innovate, when we're trying to break the mold, right, on what we're working on, um, having basically lack of diversity of thought means we're probably not getting vantage points points that are different. We're probably not getting unique experiences that add dimension to what we're doing. So there's a real case just around having diversity of thought. We then start to think about um, empathy, right? And the fact that our team, if it's rich in diversity that represents the society of the people we're trying to serve, we bring in lived experiences that inform how we best reach others. And that could be through the lens of hiring, which is we want to recruit folks from different communities. We want the perspective of those communities in our room. But it's also for folks that run businesses, it's your customers. If you have a homogenous team that only understands a specific consumer type, you can't really expect to have a great connection or reach to the audiences that you're trying to serve. And Simon, that's not to mention the fact that there are so many now studies that have pointed out that diverse teams that are culturally aware uh, and representative really outperform other teams that are homogenous in every single way, whether it's greater innovation, greater tenure, greater ability to attract a workforce, all the way to financial performance. It's interesting because, again, I can kind of see it from a from a kind of a B2C, kind of almost like yeah. a retail perspective, as in I'm selling bottles of water, all right? And I want to sell it to as broad consumer base as possible, okay? Yeah. So in that regard, then it's worth having people from a diverse background, from diverse makeup, and taking from as broad a cross-section of society and having that represented in my workforce. However, if I am selling, I'm just going to pick an example, mining equipment to buyers of our to the mining industry, okay? The person that is my customer is probably going to be less influenced by cultural and societal variances than does this particular digger or hydraulic equipment perform the task that I need it to perform. I'm wondering how diversity would play its role in more of a B2B context as opposed to a B2C context. Well, yeah, honestly, I think that both are like basically equally relevant. So we think about a B2B context and there are kind of two pieces of this. One is, do we have a culture internally where people feel safe to be themselves, where people are innovating and where we have a strong culture where people really show up authentically, right? So even before we get to our external engagement, there's just a question of, does anyone from kind of any walk of life, any lived experience, any community feel safe to be themselves here? And do we have that diversity of thought that enables us to have creative ideas and different viewpoints? And so for from a B2B context, that's extremely relevant because we want an environment, especially given the amount of time people spend at work. We want an environment where
where everyone can show up and just be themselves, right? And we know that in unsafe workplaces, people honestly are in survival mode when they're usually not even doing productive work, but in many cases, they're so distracted by the amount of fear they have every day that they show up to work that they're not doing any productive work to begin with. Then we start to think about that B2B team that is going out and it's, it could be selling widgets to another business. The more that there's diversity on that team is able to reach a broad cross-section of folks that they can connect with. They're able to empathize with different stakeholders they might be selling to, and they're likely to have a much better sense of where just things are, the world is, especially as we're navigating a tremendous amount of change right now, right? So in a B2B context, we think it's even, it's just as vital, partly because we're so much of the group that we're also trying to serve is the very people that we employ, right? Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm wondering then when we kind of take that sort of from the external to the internal, okay? And then we start to look at using a more diverse business culture internally, okay? Would you look at that at a macro level, as in we employ X thousand people and of these people, we want to show or have a diverse representation across the mm -hmm. company at a macro level? Or would you even break it down to department by department, function by function? Where do you feel the level at which diversity settles? In terms of kind of breaking it down function by function, department by department? Yeah, whether function by function, department by department, yeah. or is it just, I mean, the reason why I'm asking is because one would think that traditionally, I mean, so when I'm not doing this, I run a recruiting firm, okay? Right. Within the cybersecurity industry. And there is a significant gender bias in certain areas. So for example, within the technology space, marketing seems to be very female dominated, where mm. sales seems to be very male dominated. It doesn't, I'm not sure if there's any particular reason for that or what. It's just all I can, and this is purely just kind of some glancing that I did before you and I jumped yeah. on this call, that I just had a look at the companies that I represent from a hiring perspective, generally speaking, are there any particular roles that seem to reflect the easiest one to do was just gender, <laughs> only because I could have a yeah. look at the projects that we're running and just looking at names, right? And within that, there were certain roles that seem to be much more female dominated than male dominated. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, although the cybersecurity industry is making significant strides towards being more diverse and inclusive, there is still some way to go. Absolutely. Well, and as you know, I mean, look, you know better than anyone. My understanding in the industry is that there are just so many more jobs to fill than there are people to fill them. Many of the folks that have been kind of through the traditional channels of preparation and education have been somewhat homogenous. I imagine the cyber industry has a huge opportunity in terms of how do we get folks in with transferable skills? How do we get folks from unconventional backgrounds to follow this track, which involves a lot of preparation education and while hitting those diversity goals? It's yeah. a lot to balance, right? Absolutely. And it's interesting because certainly when you get into areas of a higher skills, I can see diversity, particularly from economic backgrounds, perhaps even some socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, where, yeah. to put it bluntly, if somebody is from a background where going to college for whatever reason is not an option, it's going to be very hard for them to become a doctor. It's going to be very hard for them to become Absolutely. a CPA, an attorney. So if you yeah. look at, for example, a law, it's going to be, I think, a much bigger diversity challenge for them to say, right, we want to make sure that X percent of our attorneys come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or from particular sectors of the community that are more associated with lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay. Yeah. So kind of putting all that together, why I can certainly see that there is a tremendous economic argument supporting diversity. Implementation of that might could be a challenge. And I remember talking to somebody a while ago about, and they were lamenting that the company had recently been acquired by a private equity company that had very specific diversity goals in place. And they were frustrated because they were saying that some of their diversity goals, particularly when it came to gender, for certain roles was simply unrealistic because 
because bringing in, particularly because within that market, a lot of women took time out to have families. And yep. whether it's politically correct to say it or not, there is still something of a traditional kind of gender association when it comes to parenthood. And it, absolutely, and absolutely. In that, if a significant proportion of the female population, I should say, takes, let's say, 10 years out, five years out, 15 years out to focus on motherhood, then re entering the workplace or just being totally absent from the workplace means that there's a significantly smaller talent pool from which to hire. So in yeah. turn, it means that companies that are then told you have to have X percent of your of the hires for across each sector of the company, department by department, has to yeah. maintain this, even just gender diversity, before we even talk about anything else, gender diversity, that can become an, ex- this person was telling me that he found that an incredibly difficult target to achieve. To the point yeah. where there were some roles they just yeah. couldn't hire. Yeah. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And look, the thing that we, if we step back, you know, the first thing we say is in, in every industry, we need to get very clear and intentional about what we mean by diversity, right? right? So when organizations set these extremely narrow targets and they aren't really even anchored to what's possible within the industry, if we're only going to recruit from the industry, let's get really clear on what we mean by diversity. So let's start to look at a different, more holistic way of seeing diversity through different right. dimensions. Okay. People with disabilities, the neurodivergent community, right? Which the cyber, a lot of the great cyber candidates fall into. Oh yeah. Uh, right. And, and so starting with that more holistic view, the second piece we say is, look, let's start to ensure that our processes themselves, the way that we make decisions and, and go about recruiting is equitable. Because if we try to simply just name a quota, an arbitrary quota, and then try to hit it without changing any systems, processes, and behavior, it's likely not going to work, right? So we've created, you know, a whole framework that we call our equity index, which is helping organizations measure and monitor how equitable and accessible are our systems in the way that we hire and the way that we advance people. So we can start to set extremely targeted diversity goals and we can identify these gaps so that we give every candidate an equal shot. And the final piece we realize is that so much of this work comes down to changing the behavior of our team members. And we could have, and I know you work with many hiring managers, we could have the greatest aspirations for diversity, but if if the decision to hire a candidate comes to a hiring manager who says, I only want someone with this industry experience or this pedigree, master's degree, and no transferable skills and can't have an unconventional resume, then all of the efforts kind of go out the door there. So we really have found that that kind of training and engagement of folks making hiring decisions is critical to this work really working. I've noticed, certainly in the last year since people came kind of blinking out into the sunshine from lockdowns, hiring across the board, certainly in, in the industries that I hire in, and also through talking to colleagues in that focus on other sectors, that people that are hiring seem to be more risk averse. They're mm. not taking chances as much, okay? So very often it really is a case of, I want the person that did this exact role for the other company. They want industry experience. They want a proven track record, as it were, right? How do you feel that in this kind of economic climate, and you know, people are even talking about, we may well be heading into harsher economic times moving forward. Now, whether diversity is going to become something of a victim as economic times get harsher, is it still seen as a, forgive me, luxury that companies can do without? Or do you feel that maybe if companies are prepared to be a little bit more risk embracing, that diversity could even be the very lifeboat that carries them through? You know, honestly, Simon, we're going to see, I think, a very strict delineation there. You are going to see some companies that say this was an elective procedure. We did it just because we wanted to look good. And you're going to see other companies argue more and more who say this is a competitive advantage. 
advantage. And we, in uncertain economic times, have to build an even more inclusive culture that is representative of the communities we want to serve. And diversity has to be in our DNA regardless. And I think those are the companies, by the way, that really will get ahead and innovate and probably be most relevant in a down economy, that they'll have found the way to, to really kind of persevere. But I think the biggest thing for us is that at the end of the day, this is a huge unmet need in our workforce. If we look at all levels of the workforce, but especially the more senior we go, and especially the more specialized we go, like cybersecurity, there is just a complete lack of representation. And I think we have to ask ourselves, even in a down economy, is that need going away? And is the long-term kind of will to change it go away? And we just sort of believe the answer is no. We really believe that representation is becoming the new litmus test for a healthy company. And when we also start to think about the fact that there's this cultural element of people feeling empowered and feeling safe at work. And if there's anything that the pandemic taught us this last two years is that regardless of whether we like it or not, people are showing up at work and bringing everything they have with them. Their whole selves, they're literally in many cases still working from home. And we gone is the day that someone is a different person at work than they are at home. They're, those worlds have really collided. And in a workplace where people aren't their best, first of all, we can expect, and you know this better than anyone in the recruitment industry, we can expect people will leave, right? Mm -hmm. Also, if people aren't at their best and they're not feeling included and safe, we just know that they're not going to do their best work. And so I think a lot of folks are realizing there's so much more than just the representation piece. There's this inclusion and belonging piece. And the teams and the managers that really unlock that are truly bringing out the best in their people. And I think that's actually what's leading to some of the greatest performance we see. Yeah, I think you're right. It's really interesting because I look back, uh, I entered the, the recruitment industry in 1997. Okay, And over that time, there's been, I think, not just a cultural shift, but I think it's also been fueled a lot by legislation where there's a lot of anti-discriminatory legislation. So what mm. was kind of acceptable in the 70s and 80s became distasteful in the 90s and mm. then became illegal, okay? So yeah. I think the, certainly from what I've seen over the last kind of 25 years is that I think people wanted to kind of form when I started entering the marketplace. And it was, so for example, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I wear my yamaka all the time. Mm. In mm. the late 90s, it was, I'm not gonna say unheard of, but it was rare. And it yeah. got a lot more questions than, and people were generally kind of surprised that I would be so openly different Okay. Mm. But today, I don't think anyone would have blinked twice. Right. And, and particularly with much more kind of diversity when it comes to you know, people of a multitude of different faiths wearing the garb associated with that faith. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the world now certainly seems to be a much more welcoming, inclusive. I don't want to use the word tolerant because it sounds like there's something bad that they're tolerating, but yeah. just more inclusive. Yeah. Uh, people coming from different backgrounds. So I guess my question is do you think that we've come far enough for the still some there is still further to go when it comes to companies embracing people that are different to them as it were yeah well you know simon one of the things that was really interesting and thank you first of all for sharing just more about your personal story and i think you're absolutely right that we things have changed so much in the last 25 years right i think the sad truth of some of our findings in this effort had pointed to the fact that we looked at 13 different underrepresented job seeker communities for the book that we wrote and part of the whole kind of mode 
road was to get very intentional about the fact that diversity goes beyond what we can see. As much as we'd like to look at someone's LinkedIn photo and infer all the communities that they're part of, it's likely not possible. And we know that diversity is intersectional and it's in many cases invisible. And so we took the time to go and interview folks and do some research around different communities. And so we talked about, for example, the formerly incarcerated community, right? Facing many systemic barriers the moment there's a background check done. And in many industries, an inability to actually work because of a criminal history, right? All the way to groups like the older experienced worker community, which is now almost a quarter of our workforce, if you can believe it, and faces tremendous issues with ageism in many industries like tech. And yet only 9% of employers have called the older experienced worker community an underrepresented group, right? So we, one of the very sad- By the way, whereas, and I, I don't know in, in any way- Oh, please. I, I don't know in any way to, what's what I'm looking at, I can't remember anyway, but to do something bad, but that's all right. The editors will clip this bit out. But if anyone is fearful of how effective an older person is, go to Home Depot. Home oh, yeah. Depot is fantastic. Uh, and uh, most of those people are certainly old enough to be my parents, probably even my grandparents, right? And yeah. they, I mean, love going to Home Depot primarily because yeah. they are so open about having an open-ended policy when it comes to the age of their staff. And it's honestly, it's fantastic. And, I, and just because Home Depot does it great, it, I don't think it's got anything at all to do with the fact that it is that they happen to work in the sort of DIY home improvement uh, yeah, space. I it's completely agree. Just as applicable anywhere. I, right. I could not agree more. I got to Home Depot for that. on. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. So, I mean, the reality is, Simon, I think we have a long way to go because what happens, I think, in, in our in our society in general is we tend to cherry pick causes. And it's almost a flavor of the month. And we've seen some wonderful awareness raised, for example, of the Black community, of the AAPI community that both faced very visible acts of racism this last couple of years, right? Yeah. And to me, it was a huge, the silver lining on those situations was raising awareness about the historic inequities that have existed since the beginning of time. And finally, employers and leaders have stepped up to kind of start talking about it and addressing mm -hmm. it. But it doesn't discount the fact that there are so many communities facing systemic barriers every day. The disability community, 70% of the disability community is unemployed today, right? We look at that and say, wow, we have a long way to go. We have a long what's way to the, go. What's the reason for that is? I mean, yeah. obviously there are certain jobs where somebody with a physical disability may have a challenge to perform it, okay? Whereas, of course, there are enormous areas where it really makes the, whether someone is physically disabled or able-bodied really makes no difference, right? So what do you think the reason for? I mean, that's a staggering statistic. It breaks my heart. And one of the reasons I wanted to get into this work so badly, Simon, is I, in my last company, had the opportunity to work with a number of nonprofits that had workforce development programs supporting individuals with disabilities to do work. And there are both on-site accommodations and there are workforce rehabilitation programs that are all centered around helping folks of all abilities, even some with very significant physical disabilities or mental disabilities, right. to still be able to perform certain types of jobs. Right. So I think it's kind of a misconception that there's kind of just this lack of access. I think the biggest thing is that there's a mindset shift that needs to take place. Many leaders that you speak to today, even ones that are fairly well-informed, have a perception that every single person with a disability must be in a wheelchair and must not maybe even be interested in work or be physically able to do work. And in, in fact, especially the more that we've evolved to a more digital and sort of remote work environment, so many jobs today are within reach for people with disabilities. And it's about organizations stepping up. Absolutely. So give me a win. Give me an example of where you've seen an organization embrace diverse hiring and the fruits that they have reaped as a result. Yeah. Well, you take an organization like HelloFresh, right, that we started working with. They were one of our very first partners. And they, first of all, realized we have our headquarters and office-based jobs. We also have our distribution centers. And there's rich diversity in the distribution centers that we need to transfer.
transfer to our HQ into our office-based jobs. And HelloFresh basically worked with us to retool all of their processes to be more equitable, started capturing diversity data very early on to understand where they had drop-off in their hiring process. They trained their teams around things like unconscious bias, and they instituted things like structured interviewing where so much bias shows up every day. They went so far as to engage their leadership team very thoughtfully, very intentionally around the role that they all play in this work and the responsibility and accountability they have. And so this is an example of an organization that from top to bottom sort of made a very intentional shift. And they have seen tremendous results based on that. And there's so many more like that, that I think have made this work a collective effort. And I look at 23andMe that has said, we don't just have to focus on recruitment. We also have to think about how we build equitable practices for our customers, how we, in our genetics testing, which is what 23andMe does, how we have an equitable lens in the way that we're going about this kind of work so that our customer base is just as diverse as the group that we aspire to sell to. That's great. No, it really is. And all credit to you and to your team for doing that. So what are your top three tips for someone that wants to be successful in diverse hiring? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple that are immediate, right? The first thing I would say is as an individual, a leader who may have a team, or maybe just you're someone on a team who believes in this work, your ability to educate yourself and build awareness of different underrepresented communities and the barriers that they face, the biases they face, and to be an advocate for these communities, just being on the radar for your organization. That is a huge leap in positive direction, just being the advocate and building awareness across your team. That starts with your own awareness. So that's, I think, step number one. Number two, we think, look, one of the biggest barriers to hiring underrepresented job seekers is exorbitant and unnecessary requirements that have oftentimes very lazily been placed in, in, a, in kind of a convenience mechanism to weed out folks that might not be sort of the perfect candidate, right? So the moment we start to rethink some of these exorbitant degree requirements, when we start to have these large ranges of years of experience for certain disciplines, what we essentially do is we restrict our pool to a very homogenous group. So we really encourage folks to rethink unnecessary requirements, provide alternate to degrees, think about how you can start looking for transferable skills. The final piece is that we have to follow a structured hiring process. And the biggest area where a lot of bias shows up is interviews. A lot of folks, and I know you work with a ton of hiring managers, a lot of folks who have interviewed for so many years and they think they, they know what they're doing and they can improvise. And the conversation they have with one candidate is vastly different and differently structured than the next candidate for the same role. And so we just try to tell people to have an intentional plan in the way that they interview and to follow a structured rubric, which doesn't mean not having a very meaningful conversation, but it just means following some guidelines here, right? That's consistent. And that's a great way that we can reduce a lot of the common biases that show up. You're right. And you know what? Something that I bang on about my, yeah, to the companies that we work with and people in the industry is aside from diversity, just having a consistent framework for interviewing is so important because otherwise you're just, or one can just end up hiring based off of, I like that person. We had a really good fun time on the phone or, you know, in the meeting and they seem to say all the subtle things that I liked. And frankly, I don't really remember the other guys. They weren't quite as memorable. And just because someone's right. not necessarily as memorable doesn't, all it means is this guy you had some great rapport with, fantastic. Yep. I mean, they're just a very good interviewee. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be right for the job. And I think that that also lends into your point of very often people warm to people who they think are kind of like them. And they're just like hiring in their own image. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the points that you make about diverse hiring. I think it's just best mm -hmm. practice in hiring in general, whether or not diversity is kind of front and center, which you would, of course, argue it should be. Right. But irrespective of the diverse angle, I think the points that you've made, to be perfectly honest, I think it's great practice anyway. It is. Absolutely right. Yeah, well said. And at the end of the day,
they, this is not about, yeah, I think there oftentimes is a misconception among some leaders, and I'm sure you've heard this too, Simon. When we're talking about diversity, we mean sort of trading off great talent for representation. Yeah. And in our mind, I think like yours, we believe casting a wider net means finding the best people for the job. And it's a both and, not an either. I think there's also kind of that myth we have to dispel among a lot of leaders that this is about sort of sacrificing quality. Absolutely not. Affirmative action as a concept became a bit of a charged memory for many people around sort of choosing someone who was less qualified for diversity, which was never the spirit of affirmative action. And I think in some ways we've taken that into the workforce and sort of perpetuated that myth, which is not at all the case, right? Yeah, I think unfortunately some people, you rhyme in, but I've been involved in conversations about this sort of topic. The things I hear is, I just want the best candidate. I don't want the best candidate from a specific demographic that happens to be underrepresented in the organization. I want to hire the best person. And I think that unfortunately, there's been some high profile examples where this seems to have created a negative perception of diverse hiring. And I mean, I don't want to get political, so I'm not going to kind of address it directly. But I think that unfortunately, it's kind of create this misconception that mm. diverse hiring or putting an accent or an emphasis on diversity within the hiring framework weakens the workforce. But I'm delighted to hear the work that you're doing demonstrates that if anything, it strengthens it. Yeah, that's our take. And a team that's well represented and safe is going to be delivering the best results, plain and simple. But we have a lot of unlearning to do to get there. And a lot of it is challenging our previous perceptions of the space and what we've been taught and being open to kind of evolving. And I think that's really going to be what this work requires to be successful. Right. Okay, great stuff. So what's next for you and for your business? Well, so we are really doing some interesting work around expanding how organizations measure diversity, not only in the way that they hire, but also the way they survey their existing teams. And we're finding that most organizations have been, if they believe in measurement, they believe in kind of insights and analytics, they've been kind of driving without a dashboard. And so we're doing some really cool new work around expanding the taxonomy of what we can enable a candidate to self-identify as, expanding how we assess diversity in our existing teams, and starting to develop manager-specific action plans as to how they can be better advocates for this work on their teams. Because I think gone is the day that there's a sort of broad swooping set of gaps just across an organization. We actually believe that most of what needs to happen in this work starts to really happen at that team-specific level moving forward. Right, okay. And if anybody wants to work with you, download your book, or work with the organization, how can they best go about doing that? Yeah, great question. So in order to sort of just learn more about us, folks can go to matheson.io, M-A-T-H-I-S-O-N.io. Matheson was the middle name of Alan Turing. And it's, so we named the company after him, really seeing his enormous achievements, but he was persecuted at the end of his life because he was gay, as many folks may know. And folks can also learn about our book at hiringfordiversity.com. And we have a number of free resources, opportunities for folks to learn more about what we're doing and join events that we have. So definitely a really vibrant community that's advancing this work. All right, great. So I want to make sure there are links to the organization and obviously for them to obtain your book, should they choose to do so as well. Arthur Woods, thank you so much for coming into the conference room and talking to us today. It's been a real eye-opener for me and uh, something that has really kind of broadened my view on. Arthur Woods, thank you so much for joining us here in the conference room. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. This was great. Coming up next week on the conference room, I'll be talking to international PR expert, Kristen Spears. So PR is really a way that can really grow your business. So you can imagine the difference that makes for your brand going from nothing to doing that much media on something. So it's literally a way of making you a household brand by getting everyone to hear about you through the media. That's kind of the power that PR can have for you. 
Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes plus links to the resources mentioned during the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this, make sure you subscribe so that you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Also, please take the time to review the podcast so the more people who want to grow their businesses can find us. To talk about this or any other podcast, or in fact anything business-related whatsoever, find me on Twitter, at Simon Lader, or you can find me by searching for Simon Lader or Silesia Academy on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Thanks for listening to The Conference Room. Until next time, keep talking.